everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast with your hosts, April and Mike. We have a great show for you today, and this is a long-awaited podcast for all of you Thomas Campbell fans uh, who follow him and follow him on his YouTube channel. And I know that you guys have been chomping at the bit, waiting to see if we were going to get him on here, and of course we did. This is going to be a two-part podcast interview. Um, For those of you that have listened to some of Tom's work, when you ask him questions, he can give you really long answers. So we had the opportunity to sit with him and speak to him for about two hours. So this will be part one of the podcast interview with Tom Campbell. Yeah, Tom is an old friend. Uh, Like most of you know, we we filmed him for our films and uh, he has just a wealth of knowledge going out of body, doing healing and working in physics. We want to do something a little bit different with this interview and kind of ask the questions that we didn't get to ask for the films. And um, a lot of this I, I didn't know if he had answered already in previous YouTube videos. For the first part of the interview, he kind of just recaps his big toe uh, theory of everything in probably the first 20 minutes and then the rest we kind of just go off on our questions and yeah i hope you enjoy part one with tom campbell so for those of you who are new to the work of thomas campbell in 2003 he published a book that's available you know for download i think in google docs now for free and you could probably find it on his website mybigtoe.com but in 2003 he published uh, the trilogy and it's a very in-depth book um Bob was also one of the pioneers that helped to put together the laboratories over at the Monroe Institute. And some of you probably have the opportunity to listen to our interview with the current executive director over at the Monroe Institute. So it'll give you a little more insight as to how some of the hemi-sync music came about. And there's just some great stories about Tom exploring some of the out-of-body experiences there at the laboratory. And he just really has a wealth of knowledge. Glad to be uh, connected with you guys again. It's been a while. Yeah, same here. And, um, you know, we're really hoping to give listeners a little something new and maybe a little something old for those of you who really aren't familiar with Tom Campbell. But there is so much information out there. Obviously, uh, Tom is featured in both of our films. He has an amazing YouTube website where you can get caught up on a lot of his uh, My Big Toe Theory. He has wonderful books that are out there for sale as well. So we're hoping to maybe do a little review. And Tom, that's probably where we'll have you start just to kind of give a little bit of background for those maybe who are just meeting you for the very first time. And then as our interview goes on, we're hoping to just ask some questions that maybe some of the regular Tom Campbell fans haven't heard before and uh, hopefully take the conversation into some new territory today. Sounds like fun. So yeah, so go ahead, Tom. Why don't you give just a brief introduction of, you know, what is this my big toe theory? I know it's so hard to actually <laughs> wrap something up in, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe, you know, five or 10 minutes, but um, we know you could do it. So <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll just give it a, a, a very quick uh, introduction. I'm a physicist and I've been working in physics and in consciousness research for about the same length of time, which is now getting close to some 40 years, about 38, 39 years, something like that, since the early, early 70s, I guess uh, 1972 is when I began uh, my first job as a professional physicist out of graduate school. And it was the same year that I ran into Bob Monroe 
who was building a lab to study consciousness and was looking for some scientists to help him uh, man his lab. So I started my career in, in both of these in 1972 and have been working on them ever since. Now I did retire from my career in physics a few years ago, not that long. Uh, actually I retired, uh, I think it's three times before it finally stuck. And this, this last time I just refused to go back. So I'm really retired, retired now. And I haven't uh, worked professionally in physics for probably, uh, oh, I don't know, about three or four years now. Uh, but I'm still studying consciousness. So I guess my consciousness uh, research career has actually now gone longer than my physics career. Anyhow, I set out to uh, understand what consciousness was, what we were experiencing in the lab with Bob Monroe. Bob Monroe taught us how to go out of body, us, that's Dennis Menerick and I. Dennis is an electronics engineer, and he and I together uh, agreed to uh, work with Bob. And Bob had other people working with him besides us, but Dennis and I were sort of a team with Bob, and we worked together. In any case, he taught us how to go out of body when we wanted to, to where it was an on-demand sort of thing. And my job there as the physicist was to figure out the, the theory. What's going on? Why is it happening this way? Um, what does it mean? Where does it come from? What are, the, what are the limits? All that sort of thing. So I was to be the theoretician because that's what physicists do. They uh, um, model reality. And this was a, a, just a part of our reality. Just, not the same as the physical reality, but it was still part of our reality, and we needed to understand how it worked. So I worked on that, and about 35 years later, 30 years later or so, I thought I had an idea of how that worked. And I wrote the three books, My Big Toe, to explain a theory of consciousness and reality, because once you understand consciousness, then you can derive all the rest of reality and, and how it is from consciousness. Consciousness is what is fundamental. Everything else is derived therefrom. So I had this theory of consciousness, and I wrote the books. And after a year or so after they were published, I realized that the very same um, principles that were fundamental to the theory of consciousness also were fundamental to physics, and that what I had done was also uh, unknowingly laid a framework for answering the big pressing questions in physics. These are things like, why are particles probability distributions? Uh, quantum mechanics treats particles as probability distributions, and is able to then compute uh, the results of experiments if they do that. If they treat them as little massy particles, they can't get the right answers. It doesn't work. So particles as probability distributions is a big mystery. Why should it be that way? They know that they can make that assumption, and everything works out mathematically, but uh, nobody has a clue. The, uh, the other big uh, mystery in physics is uh, why should speed of light be a constant? We know that it is. Einstein uh, made that assumption that it was a constant, and then he could derive um, special relativity from that assumption. So it's key, but nobody actually knows why that should be true, because no other uh, thing has a constant velocity. And by I mean constant, I mean no matter how the source of the light moves,
the light always travels at the same speed, which is not true of anything else. Uh, so these two mysteries then just fell out uh, from the logic of my big toe. So did understanding things like quantum tunneling, um, uh, all the quantum effects, um, entanglement, all these things just were now clearly understandable how and why they worked the way they did from the logic that was deriving consciousness, the theory of consciousness and uh, of reality. So I guess it's not too surprising, you know, reality is reality and part of reality is the physical world, so it needed to describe that too, and it did. So that's kind of how I got to where I am and where the books came from. And I'll do just a little short idea of the kind of the, the core logic, if you will, that uh, lets me uh, know that the consciousness is uh, separate from this physical reality, that consciousness cannot be a product of this physical reality. And it goes like this. Uh, we're going to assume that this reality is a virtual reality. Now, your readers might think, wow, that's a pretty big assumption to state that. That's kind of almost like you know, magic to state that. But in fact, physicists today are coming to that conclusion. They are coming to that conclusion, not because they want to, but because they're being drugged, kicking and screaming by the results of their experiments. There's been lots of experiments in the last decade, physics experiments, that have demonstrated that this reality is based on information. It's just information-based. It's not solid and massy the way we think. It's just information. That's the same as saying that it's a virtual reality or a simulation. So a decade ago, there were very few physicists. There were a few, but only a few who thought virtual reality was the way reality worked. That, that was the most accurate description of reality, that it's computed. And now, I'd say uh, every physics department in every major university anywhere on the planet probably has 20 or 30% of its physicists thinking that virtual reality is a good idea. In other words, in the last decade, it's become the big new idea. And it's every day new experiments come that can only be explained by the assumption of this is a virtual reality, a computed reality. All right, well, what does that mean? So if this new trend in physics uh, continues, which I'm convinced it will, and uh, the experiments seem to be uh, verifying that, then we have to say, what does that mean for us? Well, let's take the example of the World of Warcraft, which is a virtual reality. We could take the example of The Sims. Either one is a, is a virtual reality generated mainly for young people to play, although I think there's some, <laughs> some older people who have still have an addiction to that from their younger days. But Mostly, if you know uh, any young kids, you probably know people who play World, World of Warcraft and or The Sims. So I'm going to take World of Warcraft, and let's talk about an elf in the World of Warcraft. That's one of the characters that they have. Okay, that's a virtual reality. It's computed. The way it works is that the computer that computes it sends data to the player. The player then sends data back to the computer saying how it wants this elf to move, should the elf run or, or fight or what. 
And the computer then implements those instructions from the player, moves the elf in its computer simulation, and then sends information back to the player showing the new configuration of the elf, you see? So virtual reality is really just an interchange of data between the player and the server. Server being the computer that's serving up the virtual reality game, okay? Now, the virtual reality itself, the World of Warcraft map, you know, all the mountains and rivers and lakes and elves and buildings and other critters and people and players, that map, well, I shouldn't say end the players, but that map of World of Warcraft uh, is just data in a computer. Now, it's constantly changing data because it's a dynamic simulation, which means it, it changes uh, configuration of everything as a function of time. So it's continually updated, probably every, you know, what, uh, you know, hundredth of a second or something. The, the map is updated as players uh, send information to how they want their characters to move. Okay, so that's what a virtual reality is. It's a computer and a player exchanging information. Now, it's obvious that the computer can't be a part of the World of Warcraft map. The computer can't be inside World of Warcraft. In other words, the elf couldn't have made the computer that generates the elf. You see, that just is illogical. That doesn't, that can't possibly be. So the computer has to exist outside of the World of Warcraft map. Now, from the viewpoint of the elf, World of Warcraft is the physical world to the elf. All the trees and mountains, all the things and structures there are physical to the elf. The elf runs into a tree or a rock, it bounces off. If it falls off a cliff, it gets hurt. If it stays underwater too long, it drowns. So the map, the World of Warcraft virtual reality, is physical to the elf, and the computer, therefore, has to be non-physical to the elf. Okay, now, the player is the elf's consciousness. The player tells the elf what to do. It's the thinking part of the elf. So if the player doesn't give the elf any instructions, doesn't tell the elf what to do, then the elf just stands there and doesn't do anything. It has no consciousness of its own. Its consciousness is the player. Now, the consciousness also has to come from outside of the physical reality. So the conscious outside of the elf's physical reality. So the consciousness is also non-physical to the elf. Now let's look at consciousness. What is consciousness? Consciousness is basically interpreted information. You see, what's, what are you, the listener, what are you conscious of? Well, you're hearing this. You probably uh, have your eyes open, looking at the room you're sitting in, maybe looking at your computer screen. And all of that is just data that your senses take in. So your sense data is digital data. It's photons hitting a retina, and uh, they become electrical impulses on your optic nerve, which then ends up uh, shuffling around neurons down in uh, the nervous system in the brain. So it's all data. It's discrete data, discrete photons, discrete electrical impulses. So we have your consciousness is discrete data, which we call digital, if it's discrete. It's digital information, and you interpret that digital information to be your reality. So you're looking at World of Warcraft, and what you actually get are 
a few million pixels that are lit up. They have an intensity and they have a color. And you look at all these little pieces of light, all these little dots of pixels, and you interpret those little dots of light to be the World of Warcraft reality. You see, so consciousness takes in information, interprets that information to be its environment, its reality, where it, where it is and what it's doing and how it's interacting. Well, the computer, computing the reality, is also an information processor that's computing a virtual reality. And we know that, that the way the virtual reality works is that the computer and the player are trading data back and forth. Well, what this means is that the computer and the player have to be in the same reality frame. You can't directly trade data if you're in different reality frames. So we have the elf and the elf's physical reality, which is the virtual reality that uh, it interacts with. And then we have the computer and the player who are in a different non-physical reality frame but in the same non-physical reality frame. So the player and the computer are both non-physical to the elf. So now that we've said that about that virtual reality, and everybody should have followed that logically, it's pretty, it's pretty simple logical process. So now our science says, physics is now saying that we live in a virtual reality, a computed reality. I agree with that. What does that mean to us? That means that our bodies are just like the elf. They're avatars. They are computed. So is our entire physical universe is a computed reality, just like World of Warcraft. Our consciousness is non-physical to this reality and has to come from someplace else. Dr. Fredkin, who was one of the early uh, physicists to adopt virtual reality, he called this somewhere else other. You know, it has to be an other. And what he meant was some reality other than this physical reality. So here we are in a virtual universe with virtual bodies, with virtual brains, uh, you know, and virtual trees and rocks and weather and so on, all done in a computer. We are a piece of consciousness that is the player of our body in this virtual reality. And that we and the computer, which is also a part of consciousness, exist in the same reality frame. Now this computer is part of what I call the larger consciousness system, and so is the player. So the larger consciousness system takes a piece of itself and lets it be the player of a virtual reality that it computes with another piece of itself. That's kind of the, the fundamental theory in a nutshell and uh, how it ends up with us as um, a separate a separate thing. We're not physical. The brain does not create consciousness. It's a virtual brain. The brain does not store anything, does not process anything. It's just a virtual brain. It's ones and zeros on a hard drive someplace. That's all it is. It's the consciousness that has memory. It's the consciousness that processes. Same with the elf. The elf doesn't have a brain. It's the consciousness at the computer that works the elf as an avatar. It's the same way in this virtual reality. And we say, oh, but if you hit somebody over the head and damage their brain, then, you know, they drag their left leg because that part of the brain that works the left leg was damaged. So it has to be that the body's controlled by the brain. No, if you hit somebody over a head with a, with a pipe and you give them brain damage, what you've done is you've changed the constraints in the virtual reality. Now the consciousness has a constraint of a damaged avatar. 
Same thing happens in World of Warcraft. Your, your elf falls off a cliff, and if the cliff is high enough, the elf gets damaged. And now the consciousness, the player, has to deal with a damaged elf. So in World of Warcraft, that may mean that he loses uh, hit points or that he uh, uh, loses a spell or something because of the damage. And now the player has to deal with that damage. Well, that's the same way it is in, in our reality. So the physical, what we call the physical universe, our bodies are part of that physical universe. Basically, the, the virtual reality, the physical universe, sets the constraints on the data stream between the computer and the player. So you hit that person over the head with a lead pipe, uh, they have brain damage, it changes the constraints, and the computer now has to compute a, a modified version of that avatar that's, that's damaged. And how does it do that? Well, it does that according to the rule set. You see, the World of Warcraft was programmed. A, a programmer put every tree where it is. It probably then copied the tree and pasted it at lots of places, but the programmer put everything that's in there in there. A programmer designed the elf, what color he was and how long his ears were and everything. In our reality, it evolved. We start with a rule set. Now, World of Warcraft has a rule set, but the programmers programmed the rule set. They say, here's the rules. The elf can't run but so fast. The elf can't fly. The elf has so many you know, traits and can do these things, can't do other things. That's the rule set in the world of Warcraft. In our reality, we started with initial conditions, like a very uh, compact ball of plasma under high temperature and pressure, and a rule set that said how uh, energy could exchange between uh, the things in that plasma. And then we hit the run button, and time started to increment. The plasma expanded according to the rule set. It cooled. Suns formed, you know, planets formed, and you know the rest of the story called the Big Bang, which I call the Big Digital Bang. So that's just a simulation. And our world then evolved from that simulation, just according to the rule set. And there's some randomness in how things go together in the rule set. There's a lot of randomness when there's just a ball of plasma, exactly how that works out. There's a lot of uh, randomness in that. And there's a lot of rules that aren't random as well. So we are a evolved virtual reality and our virtual reality is still evolving okay that computer program is still running and things are still changing and the computer is keeping track of all of that okay now that um, is kind of a a uh, a one over of some of the basic logical concepts here and of course it all hinges on this one uh, place that we start which is this is a virtual reality and that is becoming hard science daily. Every day there's, there's new experiments. I just got an, an email uh, yesterday about a new experiment where the, the uh, thought experiments of one physicist, uh, Dr. John Wheeler, um, were finally able to be implemented in an experiment. And again, they show that our reality is just information-based. It's a virtual simulation. So that kind of data comes in all the time. Anyway, so given that that's the case, then all the rest of these things, as you have hopefully followed, are just logical consequences of that fact. Okay, now in my books and lectures, I evolve this larger conscious system and where it comes from, you know, its origins and all the rest of that, but we don't need to go into that today. So I think that will give your user or your listeners 
maybe an idea. Well, one more point, let me add, that in this virtual reality that we have, that is our universe, there's two things I should mention because they come out to be important a lot. And that is that in order to do this virtual reality, it has two databases that help it keep track of everything that's, that's happening. And one is called the Future Probability Database. And that is a database of all the possible things that could happen next, that could happen in the future of this virtual reality, and the probability that they might happen, the probability that they would happen. Okay, so that's the Future Probable Database. And then as time goes on in this, this simulation, uh, that turns into the past database of everything that possibly could have happened and the probability that it would have. And there's just a thread through that past database called what did happen. That's our history thread. Okay, so the reason that's important is because consciousness is in this virtual reality for a purpose. And that purpose is to lower its entropy because this is a Consciousness is an information system, as I said, and information systems evolve, survive by lowering their entropy, that is creating information. The opposite of information is just randomness. If all your bits in a system are random, there is no information. As your bits are ordered and, and put in uh, meaningful constructs, then you have information. So an information system evolves by lowering its entropy. We pieces of this consciousness, we are here in this virtual reality uh, uh, entropy reduction trainer to make choices. And we make choices that hopefully will lead us to lowering our entropy because we're a part of this larger system. As we lower our entropy, the system has its entropy lowered, you see? So this is part of the the consciousness system's way of evolving and surviving is that pieces of itself get to have experience in these virtual realities and make choices. Now, in a social system, which is what a, a, a system full of individuated units of consciousness is, it's interaction between these pieces of consciousness that's the key thing. That's a social system. And a social system is optimized, optimizes its entropy reduction with cooperation, with caring. And it it uh, optimizes its entropy increase, entropy being a measure of disorder. So an entropy increase means moving toward randomness. So it optimizes its entropy increase by uh, fear, by fighting, by uh, everyone looking out for number one and trying to take advantage of everybody else. That is the, the uh, worst situation. That creates entropy. You get rid of entropy with cooperation and caring. So I call this, there's the love side, which is the cooperative side, the low entropy side, and then there's the high entropy side, which is the fear, uh, the fear interactions. So love and fear are, the, are uh, opposites of each other, and we're here to lower our entropy or become love, and it's based on our choices. Every choice we make, and we make hundreds of choices every day, are choices that help us move toward um, caring and, and cooperation, becoming love, or toward fear, self-centeredness and caring about ourselves and trying to make sure that everything happens that's good for us and not that much interested in anybody else. So that's, that's, uh, that's the overview, April. So I don't know if I took the 15 minutes you said or took longer, <laughs> but that's, a, that's it in a nutshell.
Okay. Well, Mike, I don't know about you, but I have like about five questions. So I think you and I are going to have to battle this out of who's going to ask the next question. But um, I I do have a question about this virtual brain because I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, the work that I do. So with counseling, right, a lot of people are coming in and, you know, maybe – sharing some of their experiences that might have caused some trauma. So in in the field of psychology, everybody's getting really excited about how they're learning so much about this brain, okay, the real brain, not the virtual brain that maybe you're talking about, and they're able to like, you know, pinpoint with these brain scans and MRIs that, you know, part of the brain that lights up is the amygdala, which is, you know, where some of those traumas and those emotions are stored. And now they're coming up with these techniques that I can do with clients. And that is supposed to kind of remove the trauma in a way or create new neural pathways in this physical brain. Um, So... But is that really happening? I mean, when I kind of hear what you're saying and it's almost like, well, consciousness is the one, is the thing that is kind of, um, I don't know, working within maybe this physical body. How do you explain like some of the science where they're investigating and finding out how how much the brain is actually impacting a lot of what we're doing and the capacity that it has to heal? Sure. It's it's just a more um, uh, detailed version of the story I said about hitting somebody over the head with a lead pipe. Mm-hmm. This is the more detailed version of that. The, the avatar has limitations. The avatar can only do certain things and works in certain ways. Okay? And that has to do with the rule set by which this avatar evolved. Um, you know, and again, the, av- the, the, the evolution I'm talking about here is the Big Bang evolution that ended up with our little planet, you know, and ended up with life and ended up with, uh, you know, amoebas and fish and reptiles and eventually, you know, mammals and us and so on. So we're all part of that rule set. Everything that happens here has to abide by that rule set. And for us, that rule set, of course, is our physics. It's, it's what, you know, it, it's how things have to interact. It's our science. So in any case, so we have we, as a consciousness, cannot do anything that our avatar, you know, isn't, does, enables us to do according to the rule set. So now that rule set in this simulation evolved this brain, okay? It's a virtual brain, if you will. The virtual brain is just a set of conditions that allows things or disallows things to happen. So they hit the person with the lead pipe, you just create new constraints on the consciousness. And it's the same then with the brain. So everything that the consciousness can do, everything that it, and when I say do, it's not just can it, you know, walk or talk, but it's all the thoughts. It's all the processing that goes on. It can only do that if there's a structure in the avatar that allows it, you see? In other words, you, you, your elf can't fly unless there's some sort of structure within the rule set of World of Warcraft that allows that elf to fly. So the rule set is the thing that makes this connection between the brain and the consciousness. The consciousness can't do anything that the rule set uh, you know, doesn't allow. So we look at the brain and we see that there's certain kinds of thoughts, you know, when you have some, when you see a picture and it's a, a lovey picture and it's sweet and nice and this part of your brain lights up and you see something horrific and ugly and that part of your brain lights up and something that scares you, it's over here. And we can even give people medicine that will help stimulate certain parts of the brain 
or uh, increase the neurotransmitters that are available to this part of the brain to do these functions, and we see that it changes behavior. All right? That means it's just changing the constraints. It's changing the constraints of the avatar, and the consciousness has to work within those constraints. Now, an interesting uh, wrinkle in this is the mind leads and the body follows. So as the mind, as the consciousness grows up and evolves certain understandings and capacities, the body will adjust itself and generate things to, to allow the conscious to express those things. Uh, an example of that that I have is, is um, a thing I call sheep morality. And that is a, uh, I read an article on the internet where some, um, um, I don't know whether they were psychologists or physiologists or maybe they were neuro people, but anyway, they, they realized that sheep were moral, that they, had, they made moral choices. And that was a big surprise because they thought only people made moral choices and, you know, sheep really, you know, they don't think of sheep as, as conscious, aware creatures that make moral choices. Well, they were. There, was, uh, there were uh, female sheep who were nursing, who were feeding uh, lambs that weren't their own. Well, they had lambs of their own that needed that milk, but this mother lamb was willing to share. And the biologist, the evolutionary biologist, said that's not right because the sheep's only supposed to do what's good for its, you know, to get its own genetic material forwarded in the evolutionary process. You know, that's the survival and procreation rules of evolutionary biology. And here we had this sheep that was taking some milk away from its own so that it could feed another. Because its own were going to survive just fine, but this other one wouldn't survive if the mother sheep didn't help it. So they, uh, of course, when they, you know, scientists have to find out why, so they kill the sheep, look at the brain, and they say, oh, look, it's got this little lobe here, which is where uh, moral decisions are made. Same thing that humans have. We humans make moral decisions. It's right here in this little lobe. Therefore, their conclusion was that the biology somehow, uh, just a, a freak uh, of nature, a, a random thing, this sheep brain produced this little lobe, and therefore the sheep could be moral. Well, that's just 180 degrees wrong, you know, out of phase with the truth. It worked the other way around. The sheep is a conscious critter. And it makes choices just like we do, and for basically, you know, the same, the same reasons, the same way. Its decisions can move it toward being moral or toward being immoral, toward lowering entropy or increasing entropy. The sheep evolved, evolved morality because of its consciousness. It grew up. It made good decisions. And because of that, its brain then had to develop a lobe to support that because the consciousness can only do what the body supports, you see. So the consciousness changed, the brain changes. So now let's take that back to the psychiatry and the people that you deal with. Let's say they have a, uh, a, a lack of serotonin in their system. Serotonin are, are uh, neurotransmitters. And there are drugs that, are, um, that increase the serotonin. I think they're what, SSRI, uh, serotonin... Reuptake. Re reuptake inhibitors. Inhibitors, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so what's going on there? Well, it works two ways. You can have the fact that a brain through uh, 
oh, let's say hereditary or just chance, just doesn't make enough serotonin. That their body does, they take up too much of the serotonin and don't produce enough. Okay. On the other hand, you can have a person who has a lot of fear, a lot of fundamental basic fears. And those fundamental basic fears will express themselves in the body by suppressing the serotonin production. You see? So now we're like, well, what, you know, cause and effect here. Which is the cause and which is the effect? Well, it can work both ways. You can have the rule set, which is what biology has to follow, and you can have, you know, just stuff happens. When, when an egg and sperm get together, how all of those chromosomes interact with each other is, has a lot of randomness. It's not something that's uh, foretold. It just comes out the way it comes out with a lot of random interaction, and that may produce low serotonin. If the parents had low serotonin issues, then that may be inherited. On the other hand, you may have a fear generated, and that's in the consciousness. You may have this fear and these problems and issues and guilt and all the rest of that stuff, and that may create a serotonin deficiency. You see, so it could go both ways. Our science only sees it one way, that the physical leads, and they think that consciousness is actually uh, created by a brain, and that's physical too. So they only have one reality, and that's physical. But as we've seen, if the physicists in their experiments are correct, this is a virtual reality. And it's only a virtual brain, which means ones and zeros in a computer. And all the processing and all the moral choice and everything else is done by the consciousness, but it has to be mirrored in the body. Okay, The two have to go together. So if I have an elf and I want my elf to jump 100 feet in the air, and I say, jump elf, and it only goes three feet in the air, I can't help that. You know, I'm the consciousness, but I'm restricted by what the elf can do according to its rule set. Well, it's the same with the consciousness, plain avatar of our body. It can only do what the rule set supports. Now, the rule set will modify itself to support the consciousness, because that's back to the, the thing I said, that we have this, this idea that consciousness can modify future probability. Intent modifies future probability. We've talked about that future probable database. So the intention to be moral modified the future probability of how the brain uh, developed, and it develops this lobe. So that's the, that's the mechanism. So when you're treating these patients and they're looking at MRIs and they're seeing all this stuff, they're seeing a physical analog or a, a physical... Um, I guess analog is really the best thing. A physical analog of the consciousness and what the consciousness is, do is doing, and they're seeing a result of the rule set. What does the rule set require in the way of, of uh, virtual brains? So if we go into the Sims uh, simulation, and we have, uh, you know, the Sims people all have jobs. You know, they work as janitors or, you know, artists or, or drive trucks or whatever. They all have jobs. So if we give one of those Sim characters a job as a brain surgeon and we let that character, uh, you know, cut open another Sims character's uh, head, what are we going to see inside that Sims character's head? Well, we're going to see a brain because the people who, who make the Sims, if they're going to have a character that opens up a brain, they're going to have to also simulate a brain. Right? So that's the way it works. As you, as you measure something, as you open up a skull, then you'll find a brain. Okay? 
as you open up that brain, you'll find, you know, serotonin and molecules and neurons. And as you open up those neurons and that serotonin, you'll find molecules. And you open up the molecules, you'll find atoms. You open up the atoms, you'll find all sorts of elementary particles, nucleuses, neutrons, protons, and electrons. And then you open up those things and you'll find other particles. So whenever you open something up in a virtual reality, the virtual reality has to tell you what you're going to see when you open it up, you see? That's just the nature of the way virtual realities work. So we have that brain. When we open up that skull, we find all those things that are analogs to what's going on in consciousness and to what's going on in the rule set. Because nothing can be there that the rule set couldn't have produced in its evolution. And the configuration of what's there and how it's working also has to do with the consciousness. It's fears, it's caring, and, and that sort of stuff. Now, that was a long-winded answer, but it's a, it's a similar answer I gave about the lead pipe. It's just now down in the details rather than something as, as uh, crude as a hit over the head. But it works right. the same way. Great. Thank you. So it's kind of like the, uh, the movie The Matrix, in a way. Sort of like the movie The Matrix, except The Matrix, uh, you know, it had some fundamental flaws as far as it modeling, uh, you know, my big toe theory, but basically the idea of a virtual reality and the players in that virtual reality uh, having a physical life and have no idea they're in a virtual reality because they're interacting, they're doing things, you know, they have to open doors to walk through them just like, uh, you know, every, everyone in a physical reality does. So, yes, the, ver the matrix is a good idea, a good concept of what a virtual reality is like. Of course, they had it backwards in the sense that they had the physical reality, which was the, the humans who had escaped and lived in the cave, that that was the fundamental reality and that the virtual reality then was derived. It had some big physical computer that had taken over and, and uh, you know, was in charge now. It still had the physical as fundamental and the virtual as a derivative of the physical when it's exactly the opposite. But with that, with that little minor detail excused, then uh, it was very much like the, uh, the Matrix. <laughs> and, and another question, this kind of almost piggybacks off of April's question a little bit. And uh, it, actually, it might not. Uh, but uh, it's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you back in 2008 when we first interviewed you. And that was uh, something about demonic possession. Now, is that a thing of a defect in the brain and it's almost like schizophrenia in a way or is that some other entity is trying to take over somebody else's avatar it can be for multiple reasons you know life is fairly complex and the consciousness is complex and our virtual reality uh, evolved from our rule set is complex so almost any particular action or happening there may be three or four different you know routes that could produce that action, you know, different uh, sets of circumstances. So one set of circumstances that it's the fear within the person. Okay. So if a person has a great deal of fear, then they have to, they have to externalize that fear in some way. They have to make that fear um, into something that they can deal with, understand, think about. You see, uh, it, it has to be materialized. That's just the way we as avatars have to deal in the material world, so we materialize our fears. Now, we can materialize that fear in any sorts of ways. depends on our mindset. 
if we happen to have grown up in a religious background where demons and the devil, you know, walk the earth and tempt people and take over people and so on, then that fear can be externalized as a demon. Okay? So that's one way. It's just that it's our interpretation. Remember we said consciousness gets information and then it interprets it to be a reality. Well, the information here is fear, gut-wrenching fear, and they interpret it. Where is this fear coming from? It's not me. You know, it's, out, it's pushing me around and so on. So when you go to that point, then you can say, well, it's a demon or it's, you know, this, uh, you know, I went to see a psychic, uh, you know, last year and that psychic uh, has these abilities. It must be that psychic that's doing it to me. You know, whatever's in your, whatever's in your head, that will help you find a way to interpret what you're going through and what you're experiencing. And that may be a demon. When people see non-physical beings, they interpret them. If they see a, a non-physical being that is just full of light and love and, and you know, makes them feel that they are just one with everything and love, then they interpret that being, if they're religious, as they just, you know, uh, found God or it's Jesus or it's, you know, saint somebody or whatever. If they uh, are not religious, then maybe it was the Buddha, or that would still be religious if it's the Buddha, or maybe it's just a, a guru or a, a wonderful person or their Uncle Fred or somebody because they had this wonderful relationship with Uncle Fred. It's all interpretation. So that's one thing, and that probably accounts with most of it. The second thing is, as you said, it may be some sort of hallucin uh, hallucination that's going on because of biochemistry. And that means it's a rule set function. Okay? And thirdly, it could be that some non-physical entity, remember the, the real game's being played in what we call the non-physical. It could be that some non-physical entity, that's what I call an individuated unit of consciousness, is indeed interacting with this person's individuated unit of consciousness and causing some kind of disruption there. And you might call that maybe possession or, or whatever. So it could be any of those three things. Mostly I think it's an interpretation. Sometimes it's probably biochemical, and sometimes it probably is that there is another individuated unit of consciousness that is interacting with that consciousness. Okay, so it could be any, it could be any of those. Okay. And... I kind of wanted to go a little deeper into uh, seeing uh, the paranormal, the the saints or uh, spiritual or religious figures. Like, um, I don't know, it was probably about 20-some years ago, The uh, those kids in Medjugorje that saw the Virgin Mary um, on the farm. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. It sounds uh, vaguely familiar. Yeah, it was quite a long time ago. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, Lords and Fatima as well, where the yeah. you know the kids see this figure, and um, well, I guess the kids in Medjugorje who are grown up now they still kind of interact with who they call the Virgin Mary. I just wanted to get your take on that. What what exactly is? Well, there's again, there's several ways that this can come about, and the way that is most likely uh, is that. You know, I talked about this larger consciousness system, and this larger consciousness system uh, needs to evolve because if it doesn't evolve, if it doesn't continually try to lower its entropy, entropy just naturally increases, and it will 
die. It will go away. It'll become random bits if it doesn't keep working at, at uh, uh, evolution. And part of its strategy for evolution is us, is that we come here and we make choices and we grow up. We become love. Okay. Now, this larger consciousness system then wants us to succeed in that. It wants us to grow up. It wants us to become love and make good choices. It wants us to see a bigger picture and not just be totally consumed by um, you know, our, our material needs and wants and desires. It'd like us to see a bigger picture. So some of the things that this larger consciousness system does is it produces um, paranormal effects. And it'll produce a paranormal effect that will help someone or help a lot of people uh, see your picture come to the point that you know reality is really a lot bigger than just this physical thing there's a spiritual component to it there's a, uh, a consciousness component to it that is more than just the physical reality so it will interact and play different roles to that end you know it may be something simple like a, a friend of mine who was an engineer and like most engineers very materialistic based and um, one day he had a dream that uh, actually he called it a dream, but it was an experience. He had this experience that he found himself in an airplane. And he noticed that all the people were black and white in this airplane except one little girl, and she was in color. And he happened to be an engineer that was very aware of aircraft, so he, he knew what kind of aircraft this was, you know, the make, the model, um, that sort of thing. He's very familiar with it. And he saw in great detail, which he said it made the dream more like being, you know, in, in awake than it was like being a dream, because he could tell you the clothes they were wearing and you know how their hair was combed and their everything about them. He could see these people in great detail, and he wondered what that was all about. Well, as it happened, the next day he read in a paper about an airplane that crashed, everybody killed but one little girl. And he read the particulars as he could find them about the people and the little girl, you know, her age, what she looked like, a picture, and so on. And he was convinced that that was the plane he saw. It all, everything matched perfectly. It was the same model, the same type of plane, and so on. So that was a big moment for him. And he struggled with that because he believed that reality was just physical, and what he experienced could not possibly have happened. Well, that started him searching on the internet and other places for, you know, a bigger picture and got him interested, and eventually he was one of the people that helped me uh, edit my book because he was interested, and we just came together on the internet because he was out looking for answers. So, you see, that was uh, given to him just to help him get a bigger picture. Now, that was just one person. A lot of times things are given to people that then they take and share with other people that get shared and a, a whole audience grows up around the happening and the, the message is that life is, has a spiritual component. It's not just physical. So these things, the highest probability is, and again, there's mul multiple ways it can happen, the highest probability is that it was the larger consciousness system playing the role of Mary in order to Wake people, wake people up to see a bigger picture. If they see the bigger picture, they're more likely to 
evolve toward love, they're more likely to uh, make better choices and therefore uh, the larger conscious system you know, is, is working. It's successful. It uh, is doing what it wants to do. So that's probably what's going on there. Now, it doesn't have to be. It could be that these, that the data, you know, when we talk about what these children saw, remember, this is a virtual reality. What the children saw was data put in their data stream. It doesn't have to be a physical thing. Okay, what, how they interpret it was physical. How you interpret that World of Warcraft elf in its, in its battle is physical, right? You look at all the little dots of light, all the little pixels on the screen, and you take that data of those points of light, you turn it into a reality frame. Well, that's the same thing. These children and everybody else get data streams from the server and they interpret it as their reality. So all you have to do is add a little extra data to these children's data streams that show them what they saw. And that's how they interpret it. That's what they see. So you see, it's an easy thing to do. It's not like you have to make a physical miracle. The physical doesn't exist. It's just virtual. You just change a little data in the data stream and you can create whatever you wish to create. So it's not hard for the system to do this. And it's it probably affected millions of people. You had pilgrims come to see these places and, and, uh, and so on. You know, it, it didn't affect just these kids. It affected a lot of people. And why were kids chosen? Probably because they're more credible rather than less. We don't expect kids to be out trying to scam people. You know, they just pretty much tell you what they, you know, particularly if they're young kids, they pretty much just tell you what they think. And uh, you can question them and, Requestion them, and if they stick to their story, that's probably exactly what what happened. So that's a good a good way to do it. Now, when people uh, see this wonderful, intelligent, uh, spiritual, smart person, they can interpret it to be Gabriel the angel, Christ, uh, Guru, uh, just a knowledgeable being, uh, somebody who's just really, really nice and and uh, and caring. It depends on their background because we talk about you get data and you interpret it. How you interpret it has to do with your experience. You interpret it according to your own experience base. And if that experience base um, has you know, a lot of fear and belief in it, then you'll interpret according to that fear and belief. If it has a lot of love and caring in it, you'll interpret it according to the love and caring. Whatever's inside of you, whatever you've, you've got in there with your experience, that's how you interpret the information. So we all live in our own individual reality that's different than anybody else's because we interpret the data uniquely according to our own experience base. So these um, things happen to lots of people. Matter of fact, in a survey of, of people in general as to whether or not they ever had a paranormal experience, something like 75% said, yes, they have had such an experience. So it's a lot of people get these kinds of experiences. And millions more get these experiences through other people, like this thing you mentioned with the, with the children and, and their visions. And of course, the larger conscious system will support that by doing things and passing data to people that uh, corroborates and increases and makes a bigger deal out of it. So. I think that's probably what's going on. Now, on the other hand, 
you could say that it was just, you know, it was that Mary is a, uh, is a historical figure, an individuated unit of consciousness, and has the spiritual growth of people as part of what she does. And it was something that, was, that, uh, that she arranged to do. Again, data passed, okay, from one uh, individuated unit of consciousness to another. And you could, you could explain it that way. So that's kind of the what you see is what you get sort of way. The other is what you see is the larger conscious system uh, giving you information. And the third way, of course, is these kids just had a hallucination. I don't give much credit to the third way because that generally uh, is, is uh, people are questioned enough and what they see and so on is, is uh, uh, what can we say, is criticized enough that if people, if a lot of people take it seriously, it's probably because it sounds like it happened just the way they said it did. So I don't, I don't buy the, you know, it was just them hallucinating uh, thing, although that is a possibility. So we keep that in our list of the way it possibly could have happened. Yeah, Does that it, answer your question? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think with the hallucination, it, uh, it would have to be some sort of shared experience because I think there was right. like four or five of them. Right. Um, or they all got together and it's a conspiracy, yeah. you know, <laughs> to, to make fun of the grown people. And that is possible. But I right. would say of the possibilities, that's probably the least likely. People aren't that easy to trick. A bunch of kids say that, you question them. Where were you? What did you see? You question them individually, you know. And if kids are making things up, they're not that hard to catch in a lie because they start changing their story and uh, that sort of thing. You know, right. children are children. They're, they're not uh, very good at uh, being consistent liars. Actually, almost nobody is. It's really hard over a long period of time to uh, be that consistent if you're making stuff up. So the fact that people did question and did, you know, investigate and did do all that stuff and came away with the idea that these kids are telling the truth, it's probably because the kids are telling the truth. You know, the idea that these kids are just so smart that they have everybody fooled and uh, continue today to, you know, fool everybody with their conspiracy is, you know, not likely. That was part one with our interview with Tom. Tune in next week when we have part two where we continue our discussion with Tom. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.